Now take your Bible and open to the book of John, John chapter 20, starting in verse 18. John 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, uh, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, the disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And when he said this, or he said uh, to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And be not unbelieving, but be believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see me, yet believed. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we're so thankful for an opportunity to study your word this morning and thankful for this wonderful text uh, before us that continues to point us to our wonderful Savior, the living Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to listen, to study well, to learn well, uh, and help us to grow deeper in our love for Christ as we stand amazed at our Savior, who is the King of all. And we give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to begin a little bit different than I normally do. I don't use a lot of illustrations, but I'm actually going to start uh, with one this morning. Uh, it comes from James Boyce, and I think it's helpful uh, for the verses in front of us. James Boyce says this, During England's war with Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, the people of Lon London anxiously waited news from the battlefield of Europe in what is known as the Battle of Waterloo. But in those days, there was no easy way of communication, no radio, no internet, no telegrams. Everyone knew there was a great battle pending, and they were anxious, all anxious to hear what had happened when Wellington, the British general, faced Napoleon. A series of signalmen were set atop high places to receive a message and then pass on the message to the next single, uh, signalman and then on to the next and the next until the news finally was uh, relayed back to London. The first signalman uh, on the ship uh, received a message from shore, Wellington, and then the next word was defeated. But then a fog rolled in, a dense fog, he says. Therefore, the message that was sent that crossed all the way back to England was Wellington defeated. Gloom obviously descended uh, upon the nation. But then after two or three hours, the fog lifted. And the message was repeated again. Wellington defeated the enemy. Therefore, England rejoiced. And I think the illustration is helpful because in the same way Jesus' death plunges his friends into intense sadness because of the apparent defeat of their Lord, their loved, beloved Jesus. And for the first two days after the crucifixion, the message is Jesus has been defeated, evil and sin have triumphed and won. But on the third day, he rises again from the dead in absolute victory. Therefore, the true message to the world, once the fog lifted, is Jesus Christ is risen. Victor over sin and death. He has defeated our greatest enemy. Therefore, we all have hope. And we all have cause for great joy. Now, victory is always good news. But uh, news uh, of a battle that has been won when it apparently has been lost is even better 
good news. And that's exactly the message of hope we have in the gospel. That's the part of the message of, of the Lord Jesus Christ that he brings to the world, that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was buried, he, he, was, he died, and, and with him being de- dead and then buried, hope dies with him. Hope is lost until Mary goes to the tomb on that first Sunday morning and finds the tomb what? empty. Hope is lost until she finds the tomb empty, and then the angel of the Lord announces to her, he is risen. Therefore, the greatest good news that any ear could ever hear is what Mary Magdalene says in our text here in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. And that's where we want to begin this morning. Again, we're continuing on here in our study of the book of John. We're looking at the appearances of the Lord Jesus immediately after his resurrection on the first Sunday morning. The, resurrect, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a historical reality, and many evidences have been put forward to prove that reality. And of course, we're thankful for that reality, because without the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we are all still in, dead in our trespasses and sin. We're all still guilty before a holy God, and reality is all hope is lost if Jesus Christ hasn't defeated death. But again, the fact that Jesus Christ defeated death and he rose from the dead is the greatest event of all human history. The most significant expression of the power of God on behalf of believers and the greatest good news, again, that any ear could ever hear, the fact that Jesus Christ defeated death, listen, just like he said he would. He he defeated death just like he said he would. And, And because of that reality, we who repent and place our faith in him, we likewise will defeat death. Death is not the ultimate victor. Jesus Christ is. And anyone who will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they shall be what? Saved. That's the promise of the Scripture. Again, the greatest good news that any ear could ever hear or any ear could ever receive is that peace with God is available through forgiveness of sin through this person, Jesus Christ, who's defeated sin and death. Now again, we begin the the study this morning uh, with the announcement from this dear lady, Mary of Magdalene. And again, she says, Jesus has defeated death. I have seen the Lord. Now, of course, at first the disciples don't believe that, right? Uh, Luke 24, verse 11 says, in fact, her words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe. So at first, these men will not believe what Mary says to be true they will reject her eyewitness testimony. And they have not believed the Lord's repeated affirmation that he would indeed defeat death uh, on the third day. He said that repeatedly. They did not believe, nor were they looking for the resurrection of uh, Jesus Christ. Again, with the execution of Jesus Christ, his burial, all hope was gone, and they're in deep despair. And when Mary comes to these men uh, on this first Sunday morning, they're huddled together in a room behind a locked door in fear. In fear, in doubt, in terror, uh, they're terrified that they're going to be arrested and perhaps even executed by the authorities. So at first, they don't believe. But then something happens. Something changes. And all of a sudden, these people who are hiding, these men who are hiding in fear and terror, are all of a sudden filled with boldness and courage. And in spite of all of the opposition, in spite of all the hatred that they're going to face, they're going to become transformed from cowards, frightened cowards, to bold, relentless, fearless preachers of the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus' victory over death. That's historical reality. That's not open for debate. That's historical fact. The church of Jesus Christ exists because these men went out under pain of death Uh, under intense persecution and had one story to repeat over and over again that's Jesus Christ defeated death and the church stands as historical fact of that proclamation that reality so again the question is what happened and of course what causes the transformation in these men well the answer is nothing else uh, is a possible explanation for the turnaround uh, their turnaround or the turnabout is except the literal historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead so again, all these men, you know the story, all these men were martyred, uh, with the exception of John, who dies in exile on the island of Patmos. But they're all, all the apostles of Christ were martyred for this one proclamation. The rest of their life, they're going to proclaim this truth, the fact that Jesus is victor over sin and death. 
And as we come to the text this morning, again, the, the, the disciples are hiding in fear. They're, they're in a locked room, but all that's about to change. Now, again, like all of our studies here in the book of John, <clears throat> there's a tremendous amount of material, and I'm always encouraged by just sitting down and studying and going deeper and deeper. There's a lot of material here, a lot of things for us to think about. <clears throat> and uh, I said this before, but after I get through preaching John, I'm going to go back and start at the beginning and preach it over again because now I know it's in the book, right? I mean, it's just so filled with just wonderful truth uh, to encourage our heart that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, right, and, and might have life. So there's a lot of material here, <clears throat> a tremendous amount. I hope it's an encouragement to you as much as it is to me, and we'll get going here. And in order to get the big picture, let's just go back up, because I like to do this, to get the big picture, go back up to the top of the chapter. Let me just read through this a little bit. I won't make a lot of comments along the way, but just uh, let me read. John 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now Luke, over in his account, says it wasn't just Mary. He said it was some other women who came that morning with a, a bunch of spices to the tomb because they were going to uh, anoint the dead body with spi- spices. But they get there and they find the stone is already rolled away from the tomb. So they don't find the body of Christ, but what they do find is two men who are angels in reality uh, in dazzling apparel. It says in Luke 24, the women are terrified. They bow their faces to the to the ground, and, they, and then they say to, these men say to them, Luke 24, verse 5, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned to the tomb, and uh, returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary, the, the mother of James, and the other woman. And also the other women were with them telling these things to the apostles. And again, Luke 24, 11, and these words appeared to them, to these men, right, as nonsense. They would not believe. So again, initially the men won't believe. But then verse 3 of our, uh, in our chapter here says, John 20, verse 3, Peter therefore went forth and the other disciples, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb. And stooping in and looking, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Verse 6, Simon Peter also came uh, following uh, him and entered into the tomb and uh, beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the faith cloth which had been on his head and not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered and also and uh, saw and believed and Yet they did not understand the scripture that he might, must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own home. Verse 11, but Mary standing outside the tomb weeping. Uh, Mary was outside the tomb standing weeping. And, and so she, as she wept, she stooped and looked inside the tomb and beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the other, uh, the other one at the feet uh, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Remember last time I told you, uh, we have two choices in life. Two choices. Here it is. You either believe the Word of God or you struggle. Those are, your cho- those are your choices. You either believe the Word of God or you struggle. That's it. We either believe what God says to be true in His Word or we live our life in fear and in anxiety without hope. We either believe what God's Word says because God's Word is true or we listen to the voice of our own fallen heart, which is a, sor- a great source of doubt, deception, and untruths. Again, Jesus said numerous times that he was going to be mistreated, he was going to be killed, but then he made the promise that he would rise from the dead on the third day. But Mary had not believed what the Lord said. Therefore, she's in great agony of heart, she's in great sorrow. She's shedding tears in vain. And again, as I said, while her weeping is a manifestation of her great affection for Christ, it also shows her unbelief. Weeping in great fear and sorrow because she did not believe the word of the Lord. Her her perspective is all wrong. She's looking for a dead body rather than the living Savior. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
Now again, I told you last time it would be cause for great weeping if the tomb was still occupied, because if the tomb, the tomb is still occupied, then Jesus Christ must still be dead, and there would be no resurrection, and we'd still be all under the penalty of our sin, which is eternal death. But praise the Lord, he's not there in the tomb. It's not a time for weeping, it's a time for rejoicing. Verse 14, when she said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now remember that great quote I gave you from uh, Ryle, that great statement, J.C. Ryle last week. He says, two-thirds of the times, the things we fear in life never happen at all. Two-thirds of the tears we shed are thrown away and shed in vain. Again, if Mary had found uh, the seal on the tomb unbroken and her master's body still lying cold within the tomb, then she would have reason to weep. But the very absence of the body that was making Mary cry was in reality a cause for great joy for her and for all of mankind. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which in the Hebrew means teacher. So in the great kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls her by name. He opens her eyes to the reality, listen, of how things really are. Her tears have been in vain. He's not gone. He's not dead. He is, in fact, very much alive. And the Lord Jesus Christ graciously manifests himself to all who seek him. Again, expecting to find a, a dead body, she meets the risen Savior. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Basically, he's telling her, Look, it's not the time at the moment for embracing. There's going to be plenty of time for that. I'm not leaving for a few days now. Uh, I've not yet ascended to the Father. This is really the time for you to go and tell the entire world that I've come out of the tomb. Stop clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Again, this is the greatest good news that any ear could ever receive. Not, not just because it was so unex, unexpected, but because it's true. It's true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is historically true. And because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is historically true, that means that the God of the Bible is true. He is the living God. Reuben Archer Torrey, R.A. Torrey, you might have heard that name, second president of Moody Bible Institute and later becomes the president of the Bible, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. If you're from L.A., you know Biola University. He says like this, every effect must have an adequate cause. And the only cause adequate to account for the resurrection of Christ is God, the God of the Bible. He's saying basically that the resurrection proves the existence of God. And because of the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because that is a historical truth, it also proves the deity of the person of Jesus Christ. Just like Paul said in Romans 1.4, that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus spent his entire ministry uh, teaching about the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who becomes uh, Israel, so the God of Israel. The, the true God, and he repeatedly said that God was his father. Jesus repeatedly made the claim that he was co-equal with this God, the God of the Bible. And Jesus made the claim that he would die, that he would die by way of crucifixion, and, but then God the Father would raise him up from the dead on the third day. Now, now both are pretty bold claims. Obviously, the claim to be equal with God, and, and then the claim to be one who would defeat death. And either these kind of claims are made by a blasphemer or a deranged man or both. Nobody defeats death. Nobody makes these kind of claims that he's going to defeat death and be taken seriously unless what? He defeats death. <laughs> then that proves exactly who he is. 
And Jesus would defeat death just like he said he would. Because he said God the Father would raise him up from the dead on the third day after he was executed by the Roman authorities by being lifted up on a Roman cross, not stoned as the Jewish method of execution was, but lifted up. He's talking about crucifixion. And because God raised him from the dead, that's God's way of substantiating the claim that Christ made that again he is indeed the son of the living God. Tory makes this observation concerning the claims of Christ. He says, this was an apparently impossible claim, uh, the claim to defeat death. This was an apparently impossible claim. For centuries men had come and men had gone. Men had lived and men had died. And so far as the human knowledge was concerned, that was the end of them. But this man Jesus does not hesitate to claim that his experience will be directly contrary to the uniform experience of long, long centuries. And that was certainly an acid test or an acid test of the existence of God and that he preached and the God, uh, the God that he preached stood the test. He did exactly, apparently, the impossible thing that our Lord said that he would do. The fact that Jesus was miraculously and marvelously raised makes certain that God who did it really exists and that the God that Jesus preached is the true God. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proves that the God of the Bible is exactly who he claims to be. The only God, the true, the living God. It proves that Jesus Christ is his son, a co-equal with the Father. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is true. Again, it proves that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, God come in the flesh. It tells us of the reality, of those two realities, but it also tells us uh, of something more of the character and the nature of God. That the God of the Bible is a God of great grace. We're witnessing in the world today false gods of other nations that are not gods of great grace, but they're gods of great destruction and murder. The God of the Bible is a God of great grace. He's going to judge sin, and he, he will curse it uh, with eternal death. But again, the God of the Bible is one who's compassionate and merciful for sinners. For those who admit the fact that they are sinners in need of his great grace and his great mercy. The Bible says, the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, says of this true and living God, the only true and living God, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. The true God brings life the false gods of the heathen bring death, destruction, and misery. The Bible says that the true and the living God desires that men would be saved, that men would come to a knowledge of the truth, that men would not perish. And God in his great grace and mercy has made provision for forgiveness of sin, for reconciliation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God who's come in the flesh who out of his tremendous love for men, God's tremendous love, the Savior's tremendous love comes, gives his life as a substitute, the one whom the Father will count his sacrifice in full and raise him up from the dead. Now again, we've talked about this uh, previously, and uh, the fact that Jesus was dead is unquestionably true. Uh, his death was uh, overseen and assured by the Roman soldiers, and when he'd been publicly crucified, the dead body was taken down off the cross, it was wrapped in 75 to 100 pounds full of spice-laden uh, strips of cloth. His body was placed in a tomb. A large stone was rolled over the entrance, and the tomb was sealed. Roman guards stood watch uh, over the grave on pain of death. And again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historically true that only a fool or one who loves their sin and hates the truth would deny And again, because Jesus Christ defeated death, his sacrifice was received in full as full penalty of the payment for sin for mankind, for those who repent and believe upon Jesus. Jesus Christ said he came into the world, Matthew 20, verse 28, to give his life a ransom for many. And again, Paul says, look, those who repent and place their trust in him are forgiven. Romans 4, verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Tory writes this, he says, 
When Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died with him. When he arose, I rose, he rose as my representative, and I rose with him. I look at the cross of Christ, and I know that atonement has been made for my sin. I look at the open sepulcher and the, the risen, ascended Lord, and I know that atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins have been. No longer remains a single sin. Tremendous truth. I've seen the risen Lord. Again, the greatest news that any ear could ever receive. Jesus is no longer dead. He's alive. He has the power over sin. He has the power over death. Uh, the power over the devil. Power, again, over the grave. Paul, in fact, says in Ephesians chapter 1 uh, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's now alive, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, those are ranks of angelic beings, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians 1, verse 21. Therefore, since Jesus has taken his seat in the divine eternal place of power in heaven, Paul says, Romans 8, 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means that we have great encouragement for this life. We have great encouragement for our life. It's a present world we live in. It's fallen. We've got that. But no matter what issues or what struggles we go through, no matter what difficulties we face, listen, Christ is our victor. Christ is our victor. And through Christ and his resurrection from the dead, he has sent the person of the Holy Spirit, just like he said he would, who indwells us, who, who never leaves us nor forsakes us, who Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us, empowers us for life and godliness. And that same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is that same power that we have available to us to live life in this fallen world. That same resurrection power is the, the power we have to actively, that actively works in us through Christ so that we can live life in the midst of various trials and difficulties in our daily existence by our faith through him. Christ's victory over sin, Christ's victory over death means our victory over sin and over the grave. It means that we're going to be with him forever. Remember he said back in chapter 14 that he was going to go, prepare a place, and then come back and take us to the Father's house where we would be with him forever. Did I say you only have two choices in the world? Either believe what God says to be true or struggle. There's no other option. This is the very same one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, uh, though he die, yet he shall live. So we have great hope. And again, we should have great trust in his word, believing everything that he says to be true because it is and he is. He is the truth. And it's the truth and the living Lord of glory that we should put our trust in. It's the true and the living Lord of glory that we should be encouraged by. The true and the living Lord of glory is the one whom we should rest in. I've seen the Lord. And the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians is the prayer that we should pray for each other and for ourselves. That we'd actually believe. And that our hearts would actually be enlightened by the truth. Ephesians 1 verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. 
These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Mary Magdalene shows up. She tells the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And he said these things to me. Verse 19, when therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, again, we're talking the resurrection day, we're talking uh, Sunday morning. I showed you a couple weeks back why uh, the church always gathers on Sunday, because this is the day when the Lord defeated death, and this is the day when uh, the Lord uh, appeared to his followers. So verse 19 is really going to uh, describe our Lord in his first appearance uh, to, to the apostles. After after he defeats death, and he appears to Mary Magdalene that that morning, and between the morning and the evening, he's already appeared three other times. Once to the company of the women returning from the tomb, as described by Matthew. Once to Simon Peter, we're told by both Luke and Paul. And then once again to the two disciples on on the road to Emmaus in Luke twenty four. Verse 19 again, therefore when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were. Now we're not told exactly where the location is. Some have assumed perhaps it's the same upper room that uh, they used uh, for the Passover. We're not told the exact reason why they're meeting. You'd have to assume uh, that it's because of the testimony of the eyewitnesses that Jesus had indeed uh, risen from the dead and he was literally alive. But again, the text says when the doors were shut where the disciples were. It's noteworthy because the idea behind the Greek word, therefore, for shut is really barred or locked. When the door was barred, when the door was locked, ESV translates it uh, that uh, very way. Uh, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And they must have believed, these apostles, uh, they must have believed, the disciples, they must have believed that their lives were in imminent danger. Obviously, they were well aware of the fact of what happened uh, to Jesus, how he was treated, and how the authorities had executed him. Therefore, it might, must be reasonable to expect that they too would soon be uh, arrested and uh, be the recipients of uh, ill treatment themselves. Especially in light of the stories that the Jewish religious authorities are passing around that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. But note this. While they are still in fear, they still met. While they're in great fear, they still met. John Calvin says this example is worthy of notice for they are less courageous than they ought to have been. Still, they do not give away to their weakness but gather courage so as to remain together. Another commentator, Richard Phillips, points out that reality. He says this, Many Christians today living under government persecution continue to meet secretly and in fear. They, like the disciples gathered on the Resurrection Sunday, they will find that Christ cannot be kept from joining his people in their need. It's a great statement. And that's a great challenge for us as we look and we see the days growing darker and perhaps persecution very much on the horizon. It's a great reminder that we need to, in these days as they grow darker and persecution is looming, we need to meet together more often, not less often, no matter what comes our way. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. We need to continue to meet, even secretly and in fear if need be, believing that Christ can't be kept from his people in their hour of need. 
We need to meet together more. We need to consider how to encourage each other, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds as we see the days drawing close. When therefore it was evening on that first day of the week, when doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now again, the fact that the doors are locked is not a deterrent to Jesus. And there's a lot of discussion amongst the commentators on how Jesus entered the room. Some have said he just suddenly burst the doors open and entered. Some said he snuck in with the men from Emmaus. The other men didn't see him. Others say that he was able to instantaneously appear in the room, passing through the walls with a glorified resurrected body. Now the text doesn't tell us, so we have to be careful here, but we do know that it was a real body, a material body. We knew that, know that it's a body that could be touched, seen, felled, handled. But at the same time, it was a supernatural body. It was a resurrected body. And again, while the text doesn't say specifically, I personally lean towards uh, that this resurrected body. In this resurrected body, the Lord Jesus had the ability to rearrange the molecules in his body and pass right through the wall into that upper room uh, where the men were meeting without opening the door just exactly as he rearranged his molecules and exited the grave cloths and then the walls of the stone tomb and then appeared on the outside. So with his glorious resurrected body, he could appear among his disciples seemingly out of nowhere. The commentator F.B. Meyer says this, he's not subject to all the laws that govern our physical life. He could pass freely through unopened doors and at will could manifest himself, speak, stand, and walk, or subject himself to physical sense. So again, I think the point is we have to understand that he's in a real literal physical body. He's not an apparition. He's not a hallucination. He's not a spirit. It's a real, physical, tangible body. In fact, he shows his hands in his side, and he has them touch his body. Luke uh, 24 verses 42 and 43 eat some food with them some some broiled fish so this is jesus the real jesus in bodily form with a glorified resurrected body but nevertheless it's a real body paul says our bodies are sown in weakness but they're raised spiritual bodies imperishable with glory and power immortal as he says in luke uh, in first uh, corinthians chapter 15 now of course the skeptic doesn't believe any of this because the skeptic, listen, is already in the active process of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's what all unbelievers do. I've told you a hundred times, it's not about evidence, it's about heart. And the heart of a fallen man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Fights against the truth. Now there are many ridiculous ideas of how Jesus got into the room. Apart from just believing the miraculous. Just as there are many uh, ridiculous ideas of, uh, that are out there that want to deny the resurrection. How did he get in the room? You, 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 somebody didn't say this. I don't know. I'm just telling you what they said. How did he get in the room? A janitor let him in. He had a secret key. He found an open door or an open window and he crawled through the window. He was already in the room when he got in there, and he locked the door, so they had to unlock the door and come in to lock the door again. I mean, just ridiculous, ridiculous efforts to discount the truth. The fact is, they're all fear, in fear, in terror. They're inside a locked room, and Jesus suddenly appears. He immediately stands in their presence. Therefore, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, obviously, on one level, the words are, are, are meant to initially calm and reassure these terrified disciples that they're not, seeing a, they're not seeing a ghost, right? As it says in Luke 24, 37. And then also, I think, to reassure them of his continued graciousness towards them. 
his continued graciousness towards them. Remember, Peter denied him three times. Remember, all the other men, when he was arrested, forsook him and fled. So now, how is he going to approach them after the resurrection? Is he going to stop and demand an explanation for their conduct? Is he going to walk into the room and say, well, look, I'm done with you fellows. Uh, you're a bunch of losers. You're way too thick-headed for me and way too unbelieving. And the answer, of course, to that is no. He, he doesn't say, shame on you. But instead, he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. As Arthur Pink points out, he says, peace be with you because he wants to remove from their heart all fear which his sudden and unannounced appearance might have occasioned. He quiets their uneasy conscience, having put away their sin, and now he can remove their fears. He doesn't come in judgment. He doesn't come to deal with their rejection and their unbelief, but he brings to them the blessing of peace. Peace be with you. And that's a tremendous uh, um, statement the Lord makes here. I don't think you can take it just as a mere greeting, you know. Shalom, I, I got that, that's the, the Jewish greeting, but I don't think it's just a mere salutation. It's a mere greeting. I think the point is he has come to impart peace. Peace is the first words that he pronounces to his disciples' ears once he's arisen from the dead. Arthur Pink says, so it will be when we meet him face to face, we with our miserable failures, both individual and corporate, we with all of our sins of omission and commission, we with all our bitter controversies and deplorable divisions, not shame, shame, but peace will be his greeting. Again, I think it's much more than just an initial greeting. And I think you can kind of prove that by what he does next. Something more here. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Verse 20, And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now obviously in one aspect he's showing them the fact that he's a real literal, has a real literal material body. Uh, again, in Luke's version, it also says, uh, behold my hands and my feet. You know, it's me, myself, touch me, handle me. Luke 24, 39. So the Lord is showing his hands, showing his feet, showing his side, showing the wounds. I mean, he, he wants them to make sure that they understand fully that he's a real person, a real body, but he's actually the one who they saw crucified. He's the one who died a real death. He's the one who died a real death and defeated death. He's alive now by way of a real resurrection. And it's been noted by many that Jesus' resurrection did not remove the marks of the crucifixion from his body. Because Jesus considered these wounds to be a vital part of his resurrection glory an essential part of his saving ministry for his people. Uh, again, he shows the hands, uh, his hands, he shows the marks in his uh, side to the disciples. Uh, it establishes his physicalness. It establishes without question his identity. But these are, th these are trophies of the victory that he has won. Trophies of his victorious fight. And these marks, I think, taught them and teach us the basis of the peace that Christ brings to men. The basis of this peace. The peace that God wants to give to his followers. Peace was won through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace was won through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Peace be with you. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced with him when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, Therefore Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Now remember the Lord before he was crucified, uh, before he went to the cross, he promised John 14, 27, Peace I, live with, I leave with you. 
My peace I give you, not as the world gives you. Uh, do I give you? Let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He showed them both his hands and his side, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. The whole point again in buying the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he provides for men peace, peace with God because of the forgiveness of our sin. Before the cross, right? You remember this, Ephesians chapter 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Before the cross, we are all enemies, strangers, under God's wrath. All being carried along by the, the prince of the power of the air, the course of the world, all sons of disobedience. All living in the lusts of our flesh, and indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. Again, by nature, children of wrath. But, verse 4 of that chapter says... But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. It's God because of his great grace. It's God because of his great mercy. It's God because of his great love that he gave his son. And through the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his wounds we're healed. By his wounds our sins are forgiven. By his wounds, reconciliation has been made. By his wounds, we enter into a new relationship with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He showed them both his hands and his side, and Jesus therefore said to them again, peace be with you. So it's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death in our place that provides peace, that provides us peace with God. And again, the forgiveness of our sin. It's the marks on the body of Christ that proclaim that God's wrath against our sin has been satisfied in full by him. It's the marks that show that Jesus has offered propitiation that at the cross, uh, God has exhausted the full fury of his holy wrath against our sin. At the cross, Jesus Christ receives the punishment that we deserve because of our violation against this most holy God and his just law. Paul says this, Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, he was righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He showed them his hands and his side. Therefore, he said again, peace be with you. In the book of the Revelation, God opens a vision into heaven, a window into heaven, and John's taken up into heaven and gives us a picture of the worship that is occurring there. And Christ is presented there in his saving death as the defining act by which God grants, uh, 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 that God grants peace, that, that peace is forever established. And John describes him in Revelation 5, 6 as the lamb standing as if what? slain and then the redeemed saints and the heavenly host fall down before this lamb standing as if slain chapter 5 verse 9 and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And every created thing which is on heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and amen and amen and amen and amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. He showed them both his hands and his side. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. It is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, his burial, his resurrection, that God, through those events, God offers us peace with him, peace with God. And the fact that Jesus Christ defeated death, we have the peace of God. Again, my peace I give to you, John 14, 27. That's his peace indwelling our soul. That's his peace indwelling our life. Uh, again, the great, uh, point, uh, the great verse in uh, Philippians 4, 7, reading in verse 6, Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's God's gift to his people, peace both objective peace and subjective peace. Now, objective peace has been granted through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. Therefore, they know their sins have been paid. Therefore, they know that the hostility is over. Therefore, they know there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's Christ's sacrifice that has secured our union with him, and whatever happens with him has happened to us, or whatever happened to him happened to us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ again changes everything. Jesus Christ defeated sin and death. We too, because of our union with him, we too shall defeat sin and death. Now, Because again, that reality is true, objective peace, peace is granted to us that surpasses under, uh, understanding. That's the subjective peace that God grants. If Christ is indeed our victor, if Christ is indeed our champion, if Christ is the one who's gone before us to secure our eternal salvation, the one who has indeed defeated sin and death and the devil in order to do that, the one who came up victoriously out of the grave, then though we live in a fallen world, ultimately we have nothing to be anxious for or nothing to worry about because Christ is victor over all. Amen? Christ is victor. Why are you weeping? The angel gives the question to Mary. Why are you weeping? It is the message the risen Savior asks also of Mary. Why are you weeping? Is the question the Lord of glory asks you this day. Because the tomb is empty. I have seen the Lord. The empty tomb is not reason for weeping. The empty tomb is reason for rejoicing. It's joy in the heart of the believer that believes what God says to be true. And you see that joy up there in verse 20. When the disciples come in contact with the risen Savior, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples were therefore what? Rejoiced. Right? They rejoice when they saw the Lord. It's that joy that God wants for his children. That blessing of peace that flows from the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul calls us to rejoice always. And again, I say, rejoice. Philippians 4 and 4. The Christian can rejoice always, even in the midst of suffering. Because Jesus Christ has defeated death. And that reality gives peace. That brings with it godly joy. It was evening on that day, the first day of the week. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Again, verse 21, Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
Now, this is really exciting. This is really a preview of the, of the Great Commission. The Great Commission comes later in Galilee in Matthew 28. But, but this is the Lord's initial commissioning with these disciples post-resurrection. Those who have actually seen the reality that he defeated death. Those who are the recipients of his peace. For them to go into the world with the great good news that God wants to offer peace to all men. That God is willing to forgive sin through the person of Jesus Christ. Peace be with you as the Father sent me, I also send you. Now the Father again, he sent the Son out of his love for this fallen rebellious world that we're a part of. To declare the gospel and to win salvation for men through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And the natural progression of Christ's saving work in a sinner's life is that, again, he grants both objective and subjective peace, and that fills the Christian with supernatural joy. And it's out of that joy, it's out of that obedience, it's out of love for the Savior, as we're all debtors to grace that God has extended toward, towards us. That causes us to go forth into the world with the great good news that God offers peace and forgiveness to everyone who repents and believes upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. Listen to me. We only have one message to the world. We only have one message to the world. God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ if you repent and place your faith in him. That's it. The church has not been left in this world to, to change the world, but to transform the culture. That's not why we're here. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to be a social justice warrior. He didn't come to address all social ills, all the problems of a fallen world, nor to improve people's economic condition or to teach morality. Just like the Father sent the Son into the world with the same mission, the Father and the Son sends us into the world. Or again, we're, we are to declare the fact that God is willing to forgive your sin. God is willing to cease the hostilities on a personal level towards you if you will repent and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died, the one whom God has given out of his great love for mankind. We have to make sure that we understand the message because sometimes I think the message gets way too confused. All the ills of a society, all the sin of a society is because men's hearts aren't right. And all you're doing is chasing symptoms. You have to go to the heart. We have one message. God is willing to forgive your sin. And the only answer to man's problems in this world is the gospel. It takes us to the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to make sure we understand the message and the issue. We make, have to make sure that we represent Christ well as his ambassadors in a fallen world here in this rebel planet that is hostile towards him. And at the same time, we have to make sure that we realize that the men and women in this world, as wicked as they are, listen, they're not the enemy. They're the mission field. Men and women in this world, fallen and wicked as they are, they're not the enemy, they're the mission field. It's true, we live in a crooked and perverse generation. It's true, there are many people around us who don't know Christ. It's true, there are many people around us who don't know Christ that are facing eternal destruction, the eternal wrath of God. And people are perishing. Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We need to realize that our battle is not with them, not with the people of the world. Our battle is really, again, not with flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle that's going on in the heavenlies. And the truth is many men and women are trapped behind enemy lines, if you were, dupes of the devil, having believed his lies and not believed the word of the living God. And Christ sends us out into this world to represent him, to declare the truth. Again, the good news that God is willing to forgive your sin so that you might be saved, so that you might not perish, so that you might have eternal life.
Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more to unpack in that text. But again, God offers peace to the world through his son, through his sacrifice that he made on the cross, defeating sin and death. And the provision that he provides, justification, right standing before God for all who would repent and believe, that's proven because Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. I've seen the Lord. For those who reject Christ, there's no peace. It's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord, Isaiah 48, 30, or 22. No peace for those who reject God's offer of mercy through his precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. However, for the wicked, there is a great warning. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 26, says if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 31 says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this look into this portion of your good, your good news, your gospel of John that takes us to the person of Jesus Christ that shows us the reality of how things are. Jesus Christ defeated sin and death, the grave. Men have great reason for hope. Those who repent and place their faith upon the Savior. We thank you for that great truth and your kindness for opening our eyes. Thank you for the fact that you're a God who loves us, a God who saves. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand that one issue that we're sent into the world to offer men peace through Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.